name is Jared Stevens, one of the pastors here at Soul City Church. Good to see you all here this morning as we kick off a new series and a new month this month. Great to see uh, so many familiar faces, so many guests coming out. Great to see you, Alderman Fioretti. Thanks for joining us this morning. So grateful for your partnership with us in this neighborhood. So uh, we're thrilled to uh, really get into it this morning. We're going to get into God's Word. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture that you might not have ever looked at or focused on before, but we're going to actually look for God's glory to be revealed to us and our lives to be changed from some very obscure verses at the very beginning of the story of the birth of Jesus. But before we get into all that, I just want to give you a little highlight that you might have missed uh, last Sunday. Last Sunday, we celebrated baptism, which is something we do here every month at Soul City Church. It's what transformation looks like in public. And every time we do it, we say, you know, look, we got the water all day, tanks out. Anyone who hasn't been baptized, that wants to be baptized and declare outwardly their inward transformation, come up and find us. And what's really fun is after the 11 o'clock service last week, Aaron, who's a part of our community, came up and with tears in her eyes said, I know this is the next step for me. My life belongs to God and I want the world to know. And so she came back at the 5 o'clock and was baptized. Did not wake up that morning thinking she was going to be baptized. Came back and was baptized at 5 o'clock. And it was really fun for us to celebrate. It's awesome. But wait, there's more. So after the 5 o'clock service, I'm out in the lobby talking with folks, and Eric, who comes every Sunday night, sits right there in the second row, comes up to me. He's like, you know the baptism thing? I'm like, yeah. Like, my arms are still wet from it. He's like, yeah, I want to do it. I'm like, that's awesome. Like, we're baptizing again in three weeks, December 16th. Like, I give him the date. He's like, no, now. (laughs) I'm like, okay. He's kind of a bigger guy. I'm like, yes, sir. And so we... So we literally gathered everyone in the lobby who was still here. Everyone came back in here. We grabbed guitars, grabbed a mic, and said, let's do this thing. And so I want to just show you a picture. This is so cool. Eric from last week, after the service, after church was done, getting baptized last week at our church. Isn't that fun? Just to see that coming out of the water. So cool. I just love the way that God's doing that in our church. And so we are doing that again in a couple weeks. If you have made a commitment to following Jesus and have not made that next step, we would love to celebrate that with you. So fun for our church to be family like that, to celebrate these moments together. Well, we're kicking off a a new series this month where we're focusing on the glory of God. We're focusing on this kind of big idea about the glory of God and how it speaks into and intersects our lives. And what we're going to look at is specifically around the birth of Jesus to sort of center and prepare our hearts for Christmas. And so we're going to see over the next couple weeks in God's Word the glory of God revealed in the big sort of sweeping aspects of this miraculous story that we celebrate every year. But we're also going to see it in the small, maybe seemingly insignificant details of this story that we need to pay attention to. In just a few short verses this morning, we're we're going to get a glimpse of God's glory in some of the most darkest and deepest parts of our lives. We're going to get a a glimpse of of God's glory in in the places, honestly, that many of us would want to sort of keep God out of, or at least keep a nice polish or sheen on. We're going to look for God's glory in some of the places that we don't tend to share with others. And our hope and goal for this morning is that we'll invite God in and actually be able to recognize and see and get a glimpse of God's loving power and presence in our lives in the most unexpected places. Because we all have those parts of our story, don't we? That we don't tend to share, don't want to wear on our sleeve. Those are the places, honestly, where God's glory has its most redemptive and transformational power in our lives. And so we don't want to miss that this morning. This idea of glory is a word woven all throughout the Christmas story. But it's honestly a word that maybe we've heard or seen so many times that we don't even understand what it means. And honestly, at Christmas time, we have a lot of those words. 
we say things to each other and sing things about Christmas, and we have no idea what they mean. And yet we keep doing it every year. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to actually have you turn and talk to the person next to you. And I want to see if you can figure out some of these words that you sing. We may have even sung already this morning, if you actually know what they mean. All right, so this is a little Christmas quiz. I want you to turn to the person next to you, make sure you know their name. Here's the first question. You have 30 seconds to figure out if you know what this word means. What does the word Yuletide mean? I'm, no Googling, no smartphones. Let's go Amish on our answers here. So just see if you can turn to the person next to you. What does Yuletide mean? All right. I, uh, all right, we can wrap that up because we've got like two more. I always thought Yuletide was a kind of log, like one of those self-starter logs. I had no idea because Yuletide fire, that's exactly what I thought that was. Yuletide, actually, I don't know if you've got this right, is referring to a specific period of time. There's the Yuletide time, which is from December 24th to January 6th. Yeah. Oh, but doesn't really change anything. Doesn't mean anything. Like, oh, that's really useless knowledge. All right, one more. Uh, one more. I want you to turn to the person next to you and see if you can figure out any of the contents or ingredients in figgy pudding. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Does anyone know, or bonus points, have you had figgy pudding? wrap that up. Just by a show of hands, has anyone actually had figgy pudding? Oh, wow. I'm so sorry. It, I was going to share with you the ingredients. It's absolutely disgusting, and I would rather not. It's early in the morning. I don't want you to get sick in church. So uh, it is part of a tradition and something we sing. We have no idea. I'm going to say one more. You don't have to turn the person next to you, but there's a phrase that we sing every Christmas that we sing beautifully, but maybe don't know the power of the words we sing. It's Gloria in excelsis Deo. You know that phrase? Yeah, you know that one? Okay, good. Well, again, we're not sharing our answers at this point. But we sing it. We sing, Glory. We kind of go on and on in Excelsis Deo. And no one really necessarily maybe knows what that means, but it's really the focus of what we're looking at this morning. And what specifically we're going to actually look at that phrase next week. Gloria in Excelsis Deo means glory to God in the highest. It's a phrase that appears all throughout the Christmas story. Glory to God in the highest. This idea of glory is something that is revealed over and over and over again, not only in the story of uh, the birth of Jesus, but all throughout the pages of Scripture. This idea of glory, giving God glory, God's glory, appears over 300 times in the Scriptures. Just the word glory alone. And then there's all kinds of other descriptions of God's glorious splendor, God's glorious nature. This idea of God's glory appears again and again and again and again throughout scriptures, and yet so often we see it, we sing it, we may even say it, but maybe we don't know fully what that word means and why it's so important, not only in the Christmas story, but in our story as well, and when we gather together for times like this and in the seemingly insignificant aspects of our lives. Glory is a powerful word, 
And so I wrote down some thoughts on that, and we're going to look at how it appears here in a second in the Bible. But you might want to jot this down because I, I never really understood this. I sang it, I said it, but I never really understood this. So if you want to grab a pen or something, write this down. I want to try and, and help us understand, have a working definition for this idea of glory that we're going to spend this whole month looking at. Now, I've done a lot of study and a lot of Christian leaders that I respect and look to when kind of put to that question, what does glory mean? Define the word glory. Dodge the question. It's too big of a concept. No one wants to kind of put on the record like, well, you can't really define glory because it's so vast and so big. And so a lot of kind of hemming and hawing. And friends, this morning we are going to define the word glory. We're going to put it on the record. And we're going to try and do it in a way that honestly makes sense and speaks into our lives as we see revealed throughout Scripture. And so I just wrote down, glory is simply this. It's a tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection. Glory, the concept of glory that we're looking at, that we see written all throughout the story of Scripture and all throughout the story of Christmas, glory is this sort of tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection. It's a, it's a glimpse at God. It does not encompass the whole, but it gives us a, a little peek in. In fact, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, Moses, this great you know, leader of the faith, asked God, God says, what do you want? Moses says, I want to see your what? glory. I want to see your glory. And God goes, you can't handle my glory. Like you can't, you can't handle it. And so God says, I'm going to tuck you away around a corner in a cave right over here. And I'm going to cover you with my hand. And as I pass by, I'll let you see the back corner of my presence. God goes, even that tiniest glimpse, that tangible reflection of my infinite perfection will light you up and change your life. God's glory is this powerful moment, this tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection and power and goodness in our lives. And so when we look to the story of Jesus and as we center our hearts and and aim towards the celebration of Christmas, Jesus is the ultimate reflection of God's infinite perfection. Tangible in every way. God literally sending himself to us in the form of Jesus. And that's why we celebrate. And that's what we want to experience That's why you came here today. You maybe came here because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do on Sunday, and especially before the Bears game, you know, you want to go to church, and maybe you came here because this is what you did growing up, or you came here because you were dragged here by a friend, but honestly, if you were to boil it all down and peel it all back, my hunch is, your hope is that you want to experience a tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection. Why else would you come? And why else would we do all this if not for that? And so what I want us to do is look for God's glory, not in necessarily the big sweeping moments, which we'll look at over the next couple weeks, but in these seemingly insignificant details that start the story of Jesus. So if you would, please uh, grab a Bible. There should be, if you brought one, you know exactly where it is. If you didn't bring one, there should be one right in the seat pocket in front of you. You can grab it. And we're going to look at the story of glory as found through the most kind of obscure sort of list, and it's found on page 675, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start at the very beginning of the gospel account of the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at something that for many years of my life, I ignored. I skipped over to get to the good stuff. We're actually going to look at the genealogy of Jesus. I know, I know, try and contain your excitement. I know, because this is the part of the story where it's like so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's like it's honestly like the opening credits to the story of Jesus. And so lots of times we fast forward to get to the good stuff. But I actually want us to look for the glory of God, that tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection, as woven through 
all of the stories and lives and details that led to the life of Jesus. Thousands of years, hundreds of stories, all perfectly leading up to the birth of Jesus. And every one of them, even in their deepest, darkest moments, reveal the glory of God. And so we're looking in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is writing to a uh, largely Jewish audience, being a Jew himself. He is trying to show them and convey to them why Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And so he goes back 28 generations, all the way back to the life of Abraham, where God's promise was made that he would send a Savior, that there would be a way. And Matthew begins to work it out. And he takes us through, really, this list of stories, this litany of characters that, honestly, if it were up to me, I don't know that I would include. He walks through, Matthew walks through the, the, the lineage of Jesus and he includes, he makes stops at some of the most interesting characters. Now, if it were you or me and someone were writing your biography, you would want to have some say in that, wouldn't you? There would be parts of your story that you'd go, you know what, let's not focus so much on my college years. Let's skip over that and get to the good stuff where I actually start doing something with my life. Or you know what, let's not talk about the divorce. That was a dark time. Let's skip over that and get to the good stuff. Or let's not talk about that pattern of sin or addiction in my life. Let's skip over that and get to the interesting stuff. And yet what God uses Matthew to do is not skip over, but draw our attention to some unbelievably dark moments in the story of the Bible that all point to the Savior of the world. And I believe in so doing, God is speaking into and calling out to your and my story as well. That there are chapters of our life that if we had the pen, we would love to rewrite, maybe even delete. That God is saying this morning, no, 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 no. Those are the places I actually want my glory to be made known the most. The places that you want to rewrite or you want to delete. Will you invite me in? So let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, starting at the very beginning. Matthew wants to make sure you understand what we're doing. So he says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now look what he says. We're going to look at all these words and kind of break them down. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So he's letting you know what his intention is and why he's giving you this list. The son of who? David, the son of Abraham. Now two key words. Those are not in chronological order. All right. The reason he does that is he says, look, this is Jesus, the king, the true king. That's why he references David here. David was Israel's great king. And so in those first words, Matthew says, look, this is, this is he, he has the credentials. He comes from the line of David, our great king. And he goes, also, he comes from the line of Abraham, going all the way back to the original promise, the covenant that God made with his people, that there would one day be a savior and that they would be a part of God's redemption of the world. So right in the very beginning, Matthew says, look, he comes from David, he comes from Abraham, he comes from good stock. And that's where you want a genealogy to go. You want people to go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's got the credentials, he's there, Got David, got Abraham. I know about Abraham because I sang the song as a kid. He had many sons, and we all started marching for some reason. So yeah, he's, he's, he's the guy. He's got to be the guy. So Matthew says, great, you got that? Okay, let me show you. Let me show you the whole story. So then verse 2, he goes, Jacob. He refers to Jacob. Just jumping, we're going to be kind of jumping around through these verses. Jacob is a part of the story of Jesus. He's the father of Judah and his brothers. A very interesting little turn that God uses Matthew to make there. He says, this goes all the way back. Jesus' story includes Jacob, who's the father of Judah and his brothers. 
Now, now, right out the gate, Matthew's giving us a little commentary. Judah and his brothers are the sons of Jacob. Jacob himself was no saint. And we've studied the life of Jacob here at this church. He, right out the gate, was a deceiver, stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother, ran for his life, ran from God, eventually had to wrestle God and was broken by God and redeemed by God. Jacob has a story to tell. Jacob had about a dozen sons, and the most famous of which is Joseph. Now, maybe you know about Joseph because you've studied God's word or because you've sung along to the soundtrack. But either way, however you got there, you know about Joseph and his coat of many colors. You know that Joseph was this prized son, this favored son of Jacob. Joseph was the one who eventually was set up by his brothers. They staged his death sold him into slavery. He was shipped off to Egypt, to a faraway land, but God used and redeemed Joseph's story for the Savior, not only of his brothers and his family, but of the known world at that point. Joseph would have been a great name to include in the genealogy of Jesus. But Matthew says, Judah. Judah, the one who was there conspiring, the one whose jealousy overtook him the one who staged his brother's own death, who lied to his father, who sold his brother into slavery. Now, those of us who grew up with little brothers or sisters, there have been many trying times, but selling them into slavery is crossing a line. (laughs) Not saying you haven't thought about it. It's crossing a line. So right out the gate, we see, look, not only does Jesus come from Jacob the deceiver, but his son Judah, who is no saint, himself. We have already in the story of Jesus, identity theft with Jacob, attempted murder from Judah and his brothers, but Matthew keeps going. Jump down to verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, Matthew makes an interesting choice, including in this genealogy. Many, many, this is normal to have a genealogy and sort of to know your lineage. Many kings would do that in Jesus' day, but very, very, very rarely. In fact, hardly ever would you include a female, a woman, in the genealogy. That was part of their culture that day, and it was because they believed that sort of the honor and the rights were passed from father to son, and and so in that day, you wouldn't mention women in the genealogy. There was no need to, but God does. And God says, look, right here, we have Judah, who's the father of Perez and Sarah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you can read that first passage and go, great, that's great. But if you were to dive into their stories, which you can actually read about in the Old Testament, you see that there is some dark and difficult moments in this story. This is scandalous not only because Matthew includes Tamar, who's a woman, but because of what Judah and Tamar do. Now, Judah should never have been nominated for Father of the Year. He had terrible sons. In fact, they were so bad they had to be taken out. Terrible, wicked sons. And in, shortly after him losing his sons, he loses his wife. And in his grief... And his state of depression and sadness over the loss of his wife and really the, the, his life falling apart, Judah makes an interesting choice. To console himself, he seeks out the comfort of a prostitute. Okay, so, friends, this is all in the line of Jesus, all right? So he goes to see a prostitute. But what he doesn't know was that the prostitute he goes to visit is actually one of his dead son's first wife, Tamar. Tamar never got a son. 
And so she wanted the, the security, the identity, the, the place that comes from having a son. She knew in that culture, like we talked about, what would happen with sons, how they were favored. And so she wanted a son, and so she took matters into her own hands, disguised herself as a prostitute, and slept with her, wait for it, wait for it, father-in-law. <laughs> Judah had no idea until about nine months later, and she gave birth. Tamar had two children, as the verse says there. Zerah, which means, and this is beautiful, out of that darkness. You see God's glory in this. Her name, Zerah, really, literally means glowing. And she had another child named Perez, which means one who gossips about celebrities. <laughs> and so you see, early on, you see, <laughs> I can't say that, I can't even say that. So, I mean, you have to end with that joke after that story, okay? So, you see the darkness in the story already. I mean, you, you, this, is all in the, this is all by first couple verses, but let's keep going. Matthew 1, verse 5, going on. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Here it is, another woman listed. Look at the way that said. Solomon, the, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Again, not only scandalous because she's a woman, but scandalous because she actually was a prostitute, not just impersonating one. Not only that, was she a prostitute, she was a prostitute of the enemies of God living in the city of Jericho. And in fact, what happened was she wasn't even a, a, a Jew, but there was a moment where she helped the people of God. And because of her faith and courage and, and making a way for God through the most obscure and seemingly impossible odds, God used her to make a way for people that were not even her own. Her courage and faith saved her family and allowed her to be included in the story of God. This is about as far away as you could get from an ideal story. A prostitute, a woman, the enemy of the people of God at this time, and yet even there, God's glory, that tangible reflection of his infinite perfection is revealed and has worked and is made known. One more stop, and then we'll look at our own stories. Jumping down to verse 6. Look at the way that God uses Matthew to write this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. No wasted words here. David was the father of Solomon. Now, everyone knows who David is. Greatest king to ever live in Israel's story. Solomon, his son, wisest man to ever live on earth. Everyone knows those two characters. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Everyone knows David, everyone knows Solomon, nobody talks about Bathsheba. Because she represents a, a, a dark season in the life of Israel's greatest king. Bathsheba was a woman married to Uriah, who David desperately desired. And so because he was king, and because he could, he had her. And in the process of having adultery with her and realizing that he had done something terrible that had broken God's heart, instead of coming to God in contrition and confession, he began to do what we all do, cover his tracks. And so he attempted to have her husband murdered, several attempts actually, ultimately successful. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, was murdered by King David to cover up his adultery. And yet he didn't do that great of a job because here we are talking about it thousands of years later. You see the, what God's doing here. This is just <laughs> this is the first six verses 
getting to the story of Jesus, and yet here we already have deception, attempted murder, identity theft, incest, impersonating a prostitute, actually being a prostitute, adultery, and ultimately murder. This is how we get to our perfect Savior, Jesus. And this is how God's glory is revealed in the deepest and darkest parts of our story. It's as though God is making a point that he doesn't want any one of us to miss. That Jesus not only comes for sinners, but that he comes from sinners. Do you get that? That he not only comes from a distance to save us, but he enters right into our story. It comes from sinners. These are no saints that lead to the life of the birth of Jesus. God not only comes, Jesus not only comes for, to save sinners, but he comes from By the time he's born, his hands are already dirty, not with his own sin, but with ours, from his own story. This is our Savior. This is where God's glory is most worked out. Not in our our perfect, polished stories, because we all want them to sound that way, but very rarely do they ever actually sound that way. No one ever gets interested or excited or moved by a person who's born into comfort, who never makes any bad choices, who chooses the right career and marries the right person and lives in the right neighborhood. First of all, that person doesn't exist. And if they did, they're very terribly boring people. Because that's not us, is it? Our lives are chapter upon chapter of desiring God and then running from God. Having places where we feel like we're growing and then there's places where there's still strongholds, holdouts for our own will and our own way. There are the parts of our lives that we put on display, and then there's just parts of us that we keep locked up from each other and in our best attempts from God. But what I see written throughout the genealogy of Jesus, this part of the story of Jesus that I so often skipped over, is not perfect and polished people, but people broken and desperately in need of a Savior, just like me and just like you. And what I see over and over again through their stories, and you can see worked out what I've seen worked out in my own story, and maybe what you've seen in your story as well, is that every ounce of your story, every ounce, is an opportunity for God's glory. You might want to write that down, because I think there are some places that we need to be reminded of that. Every ounce of your story, every ounce of your story, the high points, the great points, the points that we all would look to and go, that's fantastic. That's an opportunity for God's glory. Because when it's great, The temptation is to say, I did it. I got here. I made it. It's about me. That's an opportunity to say, no, 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 no. God is working in me. God is using me. I cannot believe what God has done. This is an opportunity for God to receive the glory. I want this high point, celebration, great moment in my life to be a glimpse, a reflection of God's infinite perfection. And it means equally, every ounce of your story is an opportunity for God's glory, even the dark chapters some of which may be in the past, some of which you may be walking through right now. Some of them may have come to define your lives. Some of them you may have tried to manage to keep under control. But it's those places that oftentimes have the greatest redemptive potential for God's glory to come through. And why wouldn't we invite God into those places? This last week, actually over the last two weeks, I've been able to have lunch with a lot of different folks from our church. And one of the things, you know, if we've had lunch or we've had coffee together, is right off the bat, I say, tell me your story. Tell me your story. Where are you from? Tell me about your journey with God. Tell me where you're at. 
And in each of these stories, these are the guys that I was meeting with. There were a couple of chapters that I could tell. They said, you know, well, yeah, there was this. And, you know, for some it was a, a divorce. For some it was addiction. For some it was kind of a, a, a season of, of wandering from God. And when we got to those parts of their story, just like when we get to that, those parts of my story, I, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, and then there was that. But then, I, you know, they kind of wanted to just move on and turn, flip the page real quick, you know. And just because I'm, a, I think, just a spiritually interested and, and, and curious person, I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold up, hold up, hold up. Tell me more about that. Tell me more about that time. Tell me more about that divorce. Tell me more about that loss. Because I want to see a glimpse of the glory of God through that. I need to. Tell me more. And in, in some cases with these guys, it was a point where they could say, God literally carried me through. I had no other way. And for some of the guys, it was a, I don't know what to do with this part of my story. I'm embarrassed about this part of my story. I don't know where God is at yet in this part of my story. But those are the parts that I'm honestly most interested in. And I believe they're the parts of your story that God is so desperately interested in for you to invite him in so that you can actually receive a tangible reflection of God's infinite perfection. And here's the amazing thing. So that in so doing, inviting God, even to those difficult spots, others might get a glimpse of God's glory as well. Because they know you and they know your story and they know how hard it was. And for you to be able to say, I don't understand, I don't, I don't know why this all happened, but here's what I do know, God was faithful for this season. I don't know, I didn't know which way to go, I didn't know how we were going to make it through, I didn't understand all that was going on, but I do know this, I never felt closer to God in my life, even in my most darkest, deepest hour. Why wouldn't you share that story? Why wouldn't you invite God in? I mean, imagine taking your car into the mechanic, and the guy goes, okay, tell me what's wrong. You go, you know, nothing, it seems great. Everything seems to be working just fine. Still has that new car smell. Now, it's not why you're there. You're there to say, this is what's wrong and this is wrong. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, tell me what's going on. Doing great. Doing fine. But the truth is, we come to those places because we desperately know that we need help. And so when we come to God, why wouldn't we claim our desperate desire and dependence on him? To say, God, these are the parts of my story that are broken and incomplete, that I'm embarrassed and ashamed of, that I don't want to share. But God, this Christmas... I invite you in. I want your glory to be revealed through my story. I want that to be known. I need to know that, and then I want others to know that as well. And so I want to give you a little challenge, a little homework this week. I want to give you a a next step that you can take to do what maybe is something you've never done before. Or to do maybe something you've desperately wanted to do but didn't know how. I want to give you the challenge to reflect through your story this week and to go, God, is there any places where I have avoided inviting you in? Are there any places, God, where I kind of looked at my story and I thought, boy, you know, I don't, let's just, let's just hit delete on that part. Let's just kind of skip over that part. Or maybe you're just hoping God didn't notice or that he just kind of has put up with it. But what, what if you were to say, no, God, I actually want to invite you into the pain of this divorce? God, I made a mess of my life through this affair. I want to bring you in because I need, I need you to redeem this because if I keep it as it is, it's going to eat me up inside. I need you, God, to come into this season of wandering. And I'm ashamed to say, God, I've been wandering for the last five years, 10 years, whatever it is. These aren't just 
chapters from the past. There may be chapters you're in right now. God, I want to invite you in. And here's how I'd encourage you to do that. It's actually a pretty simple exercise that has pretty powerful transformational effects. I want to encourage you this week to write a letter to God. To write a letter to God. Now we're in a season where we're writing all kinds of Christmas cards and sending all kinds, or at least at the very least, you're receiving all kinds of Christmas cards and pictures and perfect family photos and all that kind of stuff that goes on. And it can be really easy to kind of get lost in the correspondence of all that kind of stuff. But I think the most important letter you need to write this week is a letter to God where you say, God, here are the places of my story where I most need to see your glory. Here's this pattern of addiction, God, that I've tried to manage on my own. I invite you in this Christmas. Here's this relationship, God, that is incredibly unhealthy and broken, and yet I keep going back to it. God, I invite you in. Here's this pattern of control, God, that I've tried. I have literally worked my way into this place by my sheer will. God, I don't want to have to do that anymore. I relinquish control to you. And you literally write a letter to God and say, God, these are the parts of my story where I desperately need to see your glory. And I believe, God, because I've seen it in your word and I've seen it in every one of these stories. In fact, I see it in the life of Jesus and the prequels leading up to the life of Jesus are all these people, God, who desperately, desperately made messes of their lives and the redemptive potential that was never lost on them and I don't want it to be lost on me, God. And so I invite you in. And you literally write a letter. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you can, bring that letter back with you next week and nail it to the cross in our prayer hall. This is what my small group got a chance to do this Friday morning. We've been working through kind of steps of inviting God into all of our life, especially the broken places. And so this Friday morning, I have a small group, which is really a medium group because there's like 22 guys in it. A bunch of those guys are in this gathering right now. And we wrote a letter. We took time to write a letter to God. And we named, by name, not in vague generalities like, God, I'm a prideful person. But we named names of who we hurt and how we've hurt them and what we've done. The places where we thought God was least interested into us, we invited him in. We wrote them out, and they're on the cross in our prayer hall right now. You can go read them if you want. Our homework this week is simply that. If you want to experience the glory of the Savior of the world coming into our story, then start with your story. Start with yours. Even those dark and desperate places. Really, what would it look like? Maybe the best thing for you to do is to write it out today because you'll forget the business this week. But would you bring it back next week and nail it to the cross and say, God, I give you these parts of my story. I invite you in this Christmas and moving forward in my life. What a gift. What a beautiful gift we would receive this Christmas to actually be free and to see God's glory, not just in the Bible, to see God's glory, not just in the birth of Jesus, to see God's glory, not just an angel singing on high, but to see God's glory in my story and in your story, and in the story of this church. That's a story worth telling. That's a story God's inviting us into. So I'm going to invite the band to come up right now, and we're going to actually have a really beautiful invitation where we get to bring our whole story to the table, where we get to bring all of ourselves to the table to be present with God, to invite him in as he has already invited us in. So that's the powerful thing about who God is and what he's done all throughout his story is God already has invited you in. The question is, will you come? Will you come? Will you come to the table with all your flaws and faults and broken patterns and habits and addictions? Will you come to the table with all the places where 
everything looks great and it's going fine and wonderful and in the places where it's not. Will you come to the table? Will you receive God's invitation to come and be present with him just as you are and say, God, will you do something with this life, with this story? God, that only points to you and your glory. Will you, God, do that in my life as you've done that in life after life after life? As we see through your word and we see throughout this church and throughout the world, would you do that in my life this Christmas? And so what we're going to do is experience something we do every month here at Soul City Church. It's communion. You know, Jesus didn't just come for a little, you know, hallmark moment at the manger kind of thing. Jesus came ultimately because the manger was really a step to his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, calling of his disciples, ultimately the building of his church. And all of those were ultimately a step to the cross where he would give his life for us. The manger was always a means to the cross. And the cross was always a means to an empty grave where Jesus literally was raised by the power of God from the dead, sealing the deal for God's glory to not just remain in heaven, but to be worked out in our lives and our stories as well. And along the way, right before the cross, Jesus took a moment at a table and he invited his followers, folks that were just like you and me. And he said, look, I want you to remember how powerful this picture is, how real this is. My body is literally going to be broken for you. My blood is going to be poured out for you. All of the story has been leading to this. So will you come? Will you accept my invitation to life with me? And so he broke bread. He said, this bread represents my body broken for you. He took wine and poured it out. He says, this is a a picture, an image of my blood, the only perfect and pure blood to ever flow through human veins. I, I pour it out willingly. I came to do this for you to cover your sins. So when we come to the table here this morning, we are remembering, we're celebrating, and we're saying yes to that invitation. And so we've set up some stations for you to do that, to come this morning. I would encourage you just to take a moment. I'm going to pray here in a second, but I want us to have just a moment of quiet reflection where you think about the story that you're bringing to the table. And even now, before you write that letter, would you start to say, God, what are the places? What are the places that you're inviting me to bring to you? What are the parts of my story that you want to redeem for your glory? And you bring those to the table. You can take a piece of bread. You dip it in the cup. We've got gluten-free bread over here. So there's, you know, if that's you, you can head right over here to your left. We don't want anyone to miss this opportunity. We're that serious about it. And so what I want to do right now is just invite you to maybe close your eyes and take a second of reflection as the band plays and as we're thinking about the power of God's glory revealed through these stories and revealed through our story. And I want you very specifically to think about your life. And just this quietness right now in your heart, what are the places that you know you've tried to hit delete on, you've tried to rewrite? Could it be the places that you wanted to rewrite or the places that God actually wants to redeem? And make right with his love and his power. What are the relationships that are broken right now that God actually wants to reveal this tangible reflection of his infinite perfection through your reconciling with that relationship? What are the places right now that are habits of of sin and addiction that have had a hold on you where you thought it was just all about you and up to you and that God had forgotten about you years ago? What would it look like for you to invite him in right now and to name it specifically, to ask for his forgiveness and for his glory to begin to be revealed 
in you, through you. Take a second right now of quiet, and then I'll pray for us, and then I'd encourage you, as soon as I say amen, to come to the table and receive the gift of life made available through this Savior, this perfect reflection of God's infinite perfection. God, thank you that we can come through the pages of Scripture and see your glory revealed, declared, sang about from angels on high to folks at the lowest parts of their lives. Thank you, God, that it's not just contained to those pages, but God, your glory is revealed in the world around us. Scripture actually teaches us, God, that literally creation declares your glory. Sunsets. Rain trees, life, God, all of it is this little glimpse, this reflection of your infinite perfection. It's written in the stars, God, around us. And so, God, we want it to be written in our lives. We want our imperfect, still working it out, trying to figure it out lives to be that little glimpse and reflection of your infinite perfection, God. And so, God, There's not much we can do other than to say yes to you, to invite you in, to invite you into those places. And so we come to the table now with honest and sincere hearts, God, aware of our stories, God, and expecting your glory to be made known and made real through our lives. So will you meet with us as we come to meet with you in this time? We pray in your name. Amen.